0: My guest today is Governor Pete Ricketts of the state of Nebraska. Pete was sworn in as Nebraska's 40th governor on January 8, 2015. He was reelected in 2018 and is currently serving in his last year. I wanted him on today because when I was out recently in Omaha, we had this great conversation and the things they're doing in Nebraska are so remarkable and such a contrast with the sort of national mess that I thought having him talk about it would really be exciting. And frankly, I was triggered in particular when he announced that he was going to give back $400 million in surplus to the people of Nebraska. It's an extraordinary move. So many other states are looking for a way to use every penny to increase government, but Governor Ricketts, true to his philosophy, actually thought it was the people's money. All through his governorship, he's worked with the state legislature to deliver $3 billion in direct property relief, dramatically reducing the rate of state spending growth and cutting on necessary red tape to bolster Nebraska's business-friendly climate. And as a result, Nebraska won the Governor's Cup for the most economic development projects per capita three years in a row from 2016 to 2018. And today, while you have a number of states that are suffering, particularly blue states with big public unions and huge bureaucracies. Nebraska has the lowest unemployment rate in all 50 states. Here to talk about his remarkable achievements, somebody who I really admire a lot. He's also just a heck of a lot of fun and comes out of a family with somewhere between the Chicago Cubs on one front, a ranch in Wyoming on another. All of the Ricketts are active people, and Pete is no exception. Governor, I think you're the only governor in modern history who is a World Series champion through your family ownership of the Cubs. They won the World Series in 2016 under Ricketts Family Leadership for the first time since 1908 and gives you some flavor of the family's competitive attitude. So I want to actually start there, if you don't mind. Can you tell us about the pledge you and your brother Tom made when you bought the team, and what it was like to be there when your goal was achieved on the night of November 2, 2016, as you were facing the Cleveland Indians?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So we bought the Cubs through a Family Trust back in 2009. And at the press conference, Tom, who's our executive chairman, announced on behalf of the family, we had three goals. To bring championship to Chicago, to fix up Wrigley Field, and to be a good neighbor. And so just like any great CEO, Tom laid out, hey, here's the vision for our organization, here's what we're gonna deliver on, and pulled the whole organization behind it. And he put his business experience to work in basically reforming how the Cubs was gonna run. You know, it's kind of crazy. You know, baseball teams aren't actually businesses, they're not hobbies but too often they run like hobbies and Tom ran it like a business and said, okay, we're going to start measuring people on success. We're going to start setting goals. But our goal is to bring a world series to Chicago. And it took us till 2016. We actually got to the playoffs for the first time in 2015, but in 2016, it all just came together and we got that world championship. In the meantime, we've also invested about $750 million or three quarters of a billion dollars in Wrigley field and the surrounding environs to be able to keep that just beautiful old stadium up and running. And we dramatically increased the amount of work that we've done from Cubs charities giving back to the city. But getting back to your question about what it was like, it really was a fantastic time. If anybody was watching that game in Cleveland, game seven in Cleveland, it was back and forth. There was no guarantee we were going to win. That rain delay certainly helped us get reorganized and pull it all out. And then being in the locker room afterwards was really a fantastic experience.
0: You want an 8-7 victory in 10 innings. Yeah. <laughs> there have been a lot of adrenaline going on.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I was standing with my brothers as that rain delay was starting. We looked at each other and said, are we going to lose this? This is crazy. We were winning. What happened? But it just gets back to one of the things that I want to stress is that Tom talked about, you know, they kept talking about a Cubs curse. There was no curse. It was just bad management. It just hadn't been managed properly. And frankly, that same lesson applies to state governments. The same thing I've done in Nebraska is bring things I've learned in business to running state government better. You know, people think government and business are so different. And obviously, we're not a for-profit organization at the state of Nebraska. But the same things that allow any organization to be successful, setting a vision, getting the right people in place, holding them accountable for results, measuring those results, that works whether you're a state government, a baseball game, or a business.
0: Let me ask you one last baseball question, and then I want to dive into Nebraska. But the Cubs became only the sixth team in World Series history to come back from a three to one deficit. When you were down three to one to the Indians, I mean, how did you and your brother feel as you faced that pretty big mountain to climb?
3: Well, obviously it was very disappointing to be down that much, three to one. But I was talking to some of the players, and they weren't down. I remember they were saying, oh, don't worry, we got this. We're coming back. David Ross in particular, who is now the manager for the Cubs, was one of the catchers on the team. And he pulled the team together and said, guys, throughout the course of the season, we've won plenty of series, three games and nothing. So this is not a big deal. We got this. Certainly, you know, from me, since I was not involved, you know, day to day in the operations of the Cubs, it was very concerning. I got to tell you, when once I talked to some of the players and they were like, yeah, don't worry, we got this, it's not a problem. Just talking about what their mental attitude was in the locker room, they weren't sweating it. And that made me feel a lot better. That gave me hope that, hey, we're going to turn this thing around.
0: Well, you know, you apply a similar kind of approach to vision for the state of Nebraska. And when you first started running for governor, I mean, did you have any sense that you could – achieve the scale of success and the scale of change that you have in the state?
3: Yeah, I got to say that there was a lot of room for improvement. So, for example, when I walked into the governor's office before I officially took over, so I was governor-elect, walked into the previous chief of staff's office and I said, hey, I would like the job description for everybody who reports to the governor. And he said, we don't have job descriptions. I said, you don't have job descriptions? How do you do annual reviews? He said, we don't do those we review people daily. When they step out of light, we yell at them. And he was only half kidding. And so I knew from the get-go that there was going to be a lot of opportunity for us just to do basic, simple things like say, hey, you have goals for the year and here's what we want you to do and start, you know, just bring some of those basic business practices into running state government better. So I knew we could make a tremendous amount of difference in the way we delivered our services. And of course, we got a great team and that was part of as well. One of the other things that we did that was pretty radical for state government, at least in Nebraska at the time, but not so for business was I actually raised private money before I was sworn in to hire a couple of talent search firms to be able to help me find my cabinet members. And I searched for key positions of corrections and health and human services because they're big organizations that were in dire need of reform. And then also my department of transportation, it was called roads back then, because that's so important for economic development and of course the department of economic development. If I could have raised more money, I would have tried to get more cabinet members as part of the talent search, but we ended up getting fantastic people from all across the country. My corrections director came from Washington state. My health and human services person, the first one came from Louisiana. I got my department of transportation person from Kansas. My first hire for economic development was not successful. So like in any organization, if you find that a person's not a good fit, it's just best for both parties to move them on. So I moved that person on. and But I ultimately hired a woman from Nebraska to take over that position. So we got a cross-section of people from in-state, out-of-state, private sector, previous government experience, no previous government experience. My CIO, I used to work with it at my previous firm, Ameritrade. A lot of these people, frankly, took a pay cut to come work in state government. But it was just, we put together a great team.
0: When you looked at your cabinet, to what extent did you try to build them as a team as opposed to dealing with them one-on-one?
3: No, we really focus on team, absolutely, because one of the things I want to do is break down the silos between the different agencies so that we'd cooperate better. One of the things we do is we did the Gallup Strength Finder with my executive team so people would know their strengths and weaknesses, so they know how to work with each other. We pull together cabinet members. I tell them, go out to lunch, take each other out to lunch. I take them out to lunch in groups so that we can get to know each other. We do fun activities, you know, like Christmas parties and barbecues and things like that, just social settings so people can get to know each other. And I'll tell you, it really paid off, and I'll give you one example. We were trying to get Costco to build a chicken processing plant in Nebraska. They had a lot of states to look at. And because we have a team that works together, it was the Department of not only Economic Development, but the Department of Agriculture, the Department of Transportation, the Department of Environment and Energy. Department of Labor, working together with the local folks to be able to meet the needs of Costco. They chose Nebraska, and that's created over a thousand jobs now. It's over a billion dollar impact on our state's economy. But it was really that team environment, both from the folks locally in Fremont and the great work they did, but also my team at the state that was able to support the needs of Costco to help them make the decision that, oh, it's easy to do business in Nebraska. Look, all these agencies work together and they're answering our questions and making it really easy for us to say yes.
0: Well, when you compare your attitude with, say, the challenges in New York and California, aren't these states with huge bureaucracies and tons of regulations, aren't they gradually just killing themselves?
3: Yeah, I got to believe so, because and I'll tell you, that's what I hear from companies that are doing businesses in those states. You know, one of the things I do is I give my cell phone out to people, right? And I'm like, try to get Gavin Newsom's cell phone. See if that works. <laughs> I was just meeting with some groups last week and we were talking. I'm like, hey, in Nebraska, you will get to meet with decision makers. You'll get to meet with me. You'll get to meet with my cabinet hands. I got companies that tell me that directors of departments in states like California won't even return their phone calls. Where I'm like, you got my cell phone number. You can call me directly. If my cabinet members not return your call, you call me. You can get through all that red tape in Nebraska where there's no chance of getting through that in a state like California or New York.
0: How much of the growth you've had in the seven years has been sort of homegrown and how much has it been new people coming in?
3: Well, first of all, my belief is that you always want to go to your existing customers first, right? Those are the people who know you and they're going to be the ones that are going to continue to invest. So I would say it's an 80-20 rule. About 80% of our growth has come from Nebraska companies that are already here. we got great companies like Kawasaki. Last year, they just announced another $300 million investment. They've got the contract, frankly, to build the rail cars in places like Washington, D.C. and New York, and they just started delivering on that. It's like a billion-dollar contract. They've had an aerospace division here. But as I mentioned with, for example, with Lincoln Premium Poultry and Costco, by showing folks who are not familiar with Nebraska what we can do for them and creating a welcoming space for them, you can get those folks, too, and get those new projects. But I'd say that... You know, just like in any business, if you want to grow your business, start with your existing customers.
0: When you have the scale of growth you've had and you manage to get unemployment down to like 1.8 or 1.7 percent, how does that affect the poorest communities in Nebraska? To what degree are they also pulled up the John F. Kennedy line that a rising tide raises all boats and you've had a heck of a rising tide in Nebraska? Has that had an impact on the poorer parts of the state?
3: Oh yeah, absolutely. Now it doesn't mean we still don't have challenges. We absolutely do. But when you create those sorts of opportunities, and we really focus on trying to create those opportunities all across the state. So not just growing Lincoln and Omaha, but growing all across the state. And that creates those job opportunities for Nebraska families. That's a big deal. And one of the stats, according to the Annie E. Casey Foundation, Nebraska is the second best state for children's economic well-being. So when you have great job opportunities, Children are taken care of. And actually, it's one of the things, so we're the second best for economic well being, and our overall stat with Annie E. Casey Foundation moved up from 12 to 9 to 7th. So we continue to improve, you know, moving up the rankings in their overall ranking as well. And again, I think that all goes together. You have job opportunities for Nebraska families, children are taken care of.
0: I've always been a strong believer in the importance of investing wisely. That's why I've personally invested in Legacy Precious Metals. At Legacy Precious Metals, they're not leaving your financial future to chance. They're on a mission to help you secure your financial future post-retirement. In partnership with them, I'm thrilled to announce the launch of the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin. This limited edition coin is made of one ounce of 99.99% fine silver, commemorating the historic moment when Against all odds, we balanced the budget for the last time in U.S. history. This coin isn't just an investment. It's a piece of our nation's history. And now you can own it. As the holiday season approaches, it's the perfect gift. You can purchase yours today by calling 866-484-4043. That's 866-484-4043. Or order online at newtgingrichsilvercoin.com.
1: That's 25% off at lifelock.com slash news. Identity theft protection starts here.
3: Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I know, right? I was worried we'd bring back the same team. Oh, no, I meant those blackout motorized shades. MVP of the room. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No,
2: it's easy. Even you could do it.
0: You then made a decision building on what you'd already done earlier that you wanted to return the surplus back to the taxpayers of Nebraska. How did you reach that conclusion? That's certainly very different from an awful lot of states.
3: Well, this is actually one of the things I started off when I became governor. I was telling people this is how it's going to work. There's no silver bullet solution to tax relief, right? As Republicans, we always talk about we want to do tax relief. And what happens a lot of times, People on the other side will say, oh, you're going to cut some program to deliver tax relief. Well, that doesn't work in business. You can't go to your customers and say, hey, I'm going to reduce what you're paying me in services, but I'm also going to cut your service because your customers will go someplace else. So what you have to do is create a culture where you're doing the best job of leveraging technology and process to be more efficient, more effective in how you provide your services. And by doing that, control your spending and let your revenues continue to grow so my philosophy was our revenues grow at 4% to 5% in a 20 or 30 year period on average. Like if you look at a long period of time, 20, 30 years, our revenues grow at 4 to 5%. I think the legislative fiscal office pegs it at 4.75. If you can keep your expense growth at 2 to 3%, you will be able to have excess revenues to give back a tax relief, right? It's pretty simple. It's like the profit of business, except that you're going to give it back a tax relief. So that's what we've done. The budget was growing at six and a half percent, which, by the way, is above what our long range revenues are growing at. Before I took office, I've now passed four two-year budgets with the legislature. The average growth rate across those four two-year budgets is two and a half percent. And so by keeping our expenses down to two and a half percent, while still doing a fantastic job of delivering our services, we've been able to generate those revenues to be able to provide tax So we signed a bill in 2020 that this year will deliver $548 million in property tax relief in addition to the other programs we had. It's equivalent of everybody in Nebraska this year will get 25% back on whatever they paid to their local school and property taxes, 25% back. And then what I'm proposing in addition to that is taking our income tax rate down by a full percentage point. Because... We've got revenues in excess of what we need to run our state government. That's the people's money. We should give it back to them. And by the way, we're still doing a wonderful job of providing services. We measure all this stuff so we can show it. And when we're not meeting our goals, I'm on my people to say, hey, you got to do better. You got to get this back into what our goals are. You know, if we're supposed to be answering the phone in five minutes or less in our economic assistance line and we're not, I'm like, I talked to my CEO of Health and Human Services. I say, hey, you got to get this back in line. You know, you've been out of whack now for several months. You got to get it back in line. So I can make sure we're still doing a good job of providing our services. We've actually implemented Lean Six Sigma, which is a process improvement methodology. We've got a Center for Operational Excellence to manage that across all of our agencies. We've done 575 projects, saving 620,000 hours of our teammates' time. So that frees up people from doing stuff that's really not value-add to providing services, but it also costs less money to do that. So it all works together synergistically to run better, be more efficient, more effective, save money, provide it back to people in tax relief.
0: What's the total budget for the state?
3: So our general fund budget in a given year is about $5 billion. And actually just on that note, so over a two-year budget period, we'll do about $10 billion. This two-year budget period between our property tax relief and the other tax relief we passed last year, like we no longer tax military retirement benefits, We did some ag relief, tax relief. We're not taxing residential water anymore, those kind of things. We're going to give back $2 billion in tax relief over these next two years. That's the equivalent of 20% of our state budget. That's never happened in Nebraska history.
0: So when you hear as a manager and as a governor that California may have paid out $31 billion in fraudulent unemployment claims, doesn't that strike you as almost unimaginable?
3: Well... I know how it happened because during the pandemic, the big focus by the federal government was get the money out the door, get the money out the door. And the federal government told us we could loosen some of the restrictions on that. And when you loosen restrictions, you open yourself up to fraud. And so you got to go back and tighten those restrictions down once the emergencies pass. And I'm guessing California never did because they just wanted to get money out to people. And we're actually one of the best states for controlling that fraud during the pandemic. And I'll tell you, we got hit a lot by people trying to fraudulently claim those unemployment benefits. And you want to get it out to the people who need it. But you got to be careful about how you do that or else it is going to go out fraud.
0: I talked to the district attorney in Sacramento who has been pursuing the unemployment theft. And she said a very large part of it was actually criminals in the California prisons using the California prison computer systems (laughs) to create identity theft. I mean, you can't make that stuff up.
3: Yeah. There's an old saying, what gets measured gets managed. You got to measure it. If you're not measuring it, of course, it's going to get out of control.
0: Well, you know, given what you have achieved already, when I was Speaker, we balanced the federal budget for four straight years. And it strikes me that there's enough waste and enough fraud that you could go a long way towards rebalancing the federal budget if we applied the kind of clear-minded management that you've had in Nebraska. I mean, what would your sense be about that potential?
3: Yeah, just coming into state government, in a relatively small state like Nebraska. And what we had to do, I mean, it takes years to change a culture, even in the private sector, and it's taken us years to get to the point where we make sure every one of my teammates has a goal for the year, that the managers are managing them. I mean, our managers didn't even know how to manage. Now you take that to an organization like the federal government, the amount of opportunity is huge, It would take years to do it and a lot of concerted effort. But if we could do for the federal government what we did in Nebraska, the results would be stunning as far as how much better we could run our operations, how much better the federal government could provide services, actually do a better job serving people, because that's what we've demonstrated. I'll give you one quick example. When I walked into office, we have an economic assistance line. This is how people applied for things like food stamps, right? The SNAP program. And it was taking us... In August of 2013, before I got elected, 23 minutes to answer the phone on average, which means some people were waiting a lot longer. And it was taking us 40 days to process the applications. These are people who need food assistance. It's taking us 40 days to do it. We set a goal answer the phone in five minutes and process the applications in 10 days. And we were able to hit those by applying better process and better technology. And so we're actually doing a better job providing services. The federal government could do the same thing. Let me tell you. The federal government many times does a poor job on those operational excellence kind of things because I'm guessing nobody's taught anybody how to manage it. Nobody's putting any controls in place. Nobody's managing anything or saying measurements. The potential for the federal government would be huge. It would be a lot of work, but the potential would be huge.
0: You know, but one of the side effects of the whole approach you've taken is not only do you have the lowest unemployment rate in the country, but you have the second highest labor force participation rate, you're at like 68.4%. And frankly, I think much of the current unemployment understates for around the country what's really going on because you have so many people who've dropped out of the workforce right now. But how do you get your labor force participation up to that kind of level, which is in terms of your employment to population ratio at 67.2%, it's number one in the country. And in terms of labor force participation, That's 68.4%. It's tied for second in the whole country. How do you get people into the labor pool who otherwise in other states would be sitting at home?
3: Well, I'd love to take credit for all this, but we've got a great culture here in Nebraska and a great work ethic. You know, Nebraskans want to work. So the first thing is, you know, we start in a great place where Nebraskans actually want to have a job. And so part of it is just making sure we're not putting up obstacles to it. During the pandemic, there was that $600 a week unemployment benefit. You know, people were being paid to stay home. $600 a week was more than 80% of what the people were receiving that benefit were getting. And when it dropped to $300 a week, it was about 50% of people receiving were still getting paid more money to stay home than they were in their regular job. And I heard this from employers all the time. And so we discontinued that, you know, as quickly as we could. So we didn't have a disincentive for people to get back in the workforce. Another one of the things we've done here in Nebraska is we've really worked to create a talent pipeline so that we can engage our young people at a young age to take the jobs that we've got. We've got lots of great jobs here. So we have what we call a Developing Youth Talent Initiative, which is a program that encourages private sector companies to grant program, to work with school districts in seventh and eighth grade, to expose kids to the idea of careers in manufacturing and technology and healthcare, those high demand fields, so that they can get exposed in seventh and eighth grade take a career academy in high school, maybe get some post-secondary education credit. Then we've got a scholarship program for two-year and four-year degree programs. So whether you want to go to community college or get a university degree, it's applicable to both private and public colleges. And then we also really focus on certification programs through the U.S. Department of Labor and our Department of Labor. We do a registered apprenticeship program and youth registered apprenticeship programs so people can earn while they learn. So we really focus on developing those skills early on and getting people interested in taking those jobs so we create that pipeline for our young people to take those jobs after they complete their post-secondary education, whether it's that registered apprenticeship program, two-year degree, four-year degree. We're really trying to encourage people to look at those two-year degrees especially. Part of my ARPA dollars, I propose about $90 million to go to our community colleges. Out of the billion dollars we're getting, a billion, 40 million to help them build out their infrastructure to be able to help get people into the workforce because we've been impacted by this pandemic in that way. So it's part culture, but it's also part us trying to take proactive steps to develop our talent and not put up obstacles for them to take jobs.
0: I noticed as a part of that process that you announced in December that the Nebraska Department of Economic Development is creating a brand new field office in North Omaha. And as you put it at the time, The office will work to attract investments, support local entrepreneurs, develop the workforce, and grow the inventory of affordable housing. In your mind, how important is this initiative specifically in North Omaha?
3: Yeah, that's a really important one in North Omaha. North Omaha is primarily an African-American neighborhood. And while we've got a low unemployment rate statewide, we've got a high unemployment rate in that area of town. And part of it is just it hasn't been paid attention to. state government and so we've made a real effort to do outreach with business leaders in the community to create you know an economic inclusion council about what are the economic development things we need to do we felt it was important for the state to have a physical presence there both with not only with the department of economic development but also the department of health and human services our department of motor vehicles to be able to provide services and part of my arpa budget is also continuing to invest in north omaha in things such as upgrading the fiber optics there or streetscape improvements, you know, things like that that will help them because they've been disproportionately impacted during the pandemic, help them recover from that. So it it is going to require effort and investment for us to be able to make sure that all Nebraskans have the opportunities to be able to take those great career jobs. And so, again, part of it is got to be present. And that's our responsibility as a state to see, hey, we've got an area where we know we need to do more work. we got to be proactive and be present to help develop.
0: One of the things you did as a part of this is really engage in a series of efforts to help people with their taxes. One of the ones I frankly don't know about was a phase in of the social security tax exemption. Would you explain that to me? Because I actually don't know what it is.
3: Yeah. Okay. So most states don't tax social security benefits. Nebraska is one of the eight states I believe that does tax social security benefits it drives our retirees out of the state. And we did the same thing with military retirement benefits. We were taxing military retirement benefits so our veterans would leave the state. So we actually just finished up getting rid of the military retirement benefit tax. So we no longer tax military retirement benefits. And last year we passed a bill to over a 10 year period, phase out the taxes on social security. And I proposed this year that we accelerate that from 10 years to five years so that we can stop taxing social security even sooner.
0: That's very helpful. I just didn't know about it.
3: And you didn't know about it because most states aren't that dumb to tax Social Security.
0: <laughs> That's right. This is one of those places where I didn't know about it because most of the time it doesn't matter. Right. But I also noticed that over the next five years, you're going to reduce the top individual tax rate by 1% from 6.84 to 5.84. Can you imagine a time in a future governorship where somebody will actually be able to abolish the individual income tax like Texas and Florida? Or do you think that the structure of your revenue system doesn't make that possible?
3: Well, we didn't get to be a high tax state on the income taxes overnight. In fact, Nebraska used to not have an income tax back in the 1960s. And that was back when the state of Nebraska collected property taxes and the people voted to disallow the Nebraska state government to collect property taxes. So they implemented both an income tax and a sales tax. At some point, could you see the state of Nebraska reducing that income tax to zero It would require a lot of work and a lot of reform in other areas but the potential is there i think the short-term goal though is to just start taking that tax rate down you know if we can get down to say a tax rate of four percent that makes us very competitive with our surrounding states and other states you know in a perfect world i would love to have zero income tax but like i said it took us more than a half a century to get to where we are today we're going to have to start working again we're not going to get this done overnight and the first step is getting that top rate down to 5.84 percent. By the way, that top rate starts at $33,000 for an individual. These are middle income families that are getting taxed at that highest income tax bracket, $66,000 for a couple family. So we want to get that tax rate down, and absolutely, we can do it.
0: Throughout history, there are clear moments that define our nation's path, and now you can own a piece of that history. I'm thrilled to announce the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition, one-ounce silver coin commemorates the historic victory in 1994 when the Republican Party, under my leadership, took control of Congress. The Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin also symbolizes the transformative political platform that led to landmark achievements like the overhaul of the welfare system and the Balanced Budget Act this holiday season, give the gift of history. The Newt Gingrich Contract with America Coin is more than an investment. It's a tribute to honest government and to America. Available to order right now by calling 866-484-4043. That's 866-484-4043. Or order online at newtgingrichsilvercoin.com. That's I'm curious. I hope you don't mind my asking us, but you've consistently had a very active life, a very entrepreneurial life, and you've been you know, very aggressive as a leader. What comes next for Pete Ricketts?
3: Well, I've got a year left as governor, and it's a big job, so you can't take your eye off. God put it on my heart to get involved in public service and politics. I ran for Senate unsuccessfully back in 2006, but that really is what allowed me to be able to put together my campaign for governor in 2014 to be successful. I was the people I'd met in 2006 helped me get elected in '14. whether it was my campaign staff or the relationships I'd made around the state. So, you know, God's got a plan for people. God's got a plan for everyone. So I'm going to let God worry about it. <laughs> I'm going to focus on being governor. I absolutely want to stay involved. I absolutely love my job as governor of Nebraska. I love being involved in politics. So I definitely want to stay involved. But the first thing we am going to do is go on vacation with my wife.
0: I remember when Lamar Alexander left the governorship after eight years, he took his whole family. They went to Australia for a year. Oh, wow. And being Lamar, he then promptly wrote a book about having spent a year in Australia. But he wanted to just get his head clear, get closer to his children. And if you isolate him in Australia, you sort of have him captured. Yeah. <laughs> But I think it was that same feeling of, look, I've invested myself, I've done this 365 days a year, and maybe it's time to slow down a little bit. So I can fully sympathize with that. I do want to say, just for the record, having been out there with you a number of times, you're really a good politician. And I mean that in the best sense of the word. You're good with people, you listen to them well. I've watched you work in the crowds, and I'm confident that those skills were pretty good for you back in the business world, too. And Whatever you do will be interesting and fascinating. And maybe after you've been out for a year, I will ask you to come back and do another podcast and give us sort of a broad overview of the Pete Ricketts world as it is evolving.
3: All right, that'd be great. I got to tell you, one of the things that does encourage me is we do see more people in business getting involved in politics. You see a number of governors who've been elected. I think that's so important because, you know, we can debate the size of government, what the proper role is. But for the things that we do do in government, we should do them really well operational excellence should be the watchword. government should do the things that they do. We should do them really well. And it just doesn't happen. It only happens on purpose if you actually work toward those things. And young people ask me, I want to get involved in politics. What should I major in? I say business. And go run something after you get out of school. And then start your political career.
0: You know, it's interesting. I was thinking as you were describing how you led the state. One of the great challenges is that Congress has managed to screw up the federal government in terms of so many rules, so many regulations. I, one time when George W. was in the White House, they had recruited a really smart medical doctor who was also a Ph.D. in information science who had done great work in Santa Barbara, California. And they got him to come in. And he grew up as a poor boy in West Virginia. And by the time they got to him, he was worth about $200 million and had a place next to Oprah in Hawaii. He was doing all right. So they got him to come in. And he worked with me. We had the Center for Health Transformation at that time. And we put together the concept of an office of innovation and technology for the health and human services people. And so he designed this exactly the way you would as an entrepreneur. And Bush liked it so much that he asked him if he would be willing to come in and actually run it. So he said, yes, he would. So in order to kick off this brand new, exciting, change-oriented office, Tommy Thompson, who was then Secretary of Health and Human Services, had been a remarkably creative governor in Wisconsin. He originated school choice. He originated welfare reform. I mean, he just was instinctively a great leader. So Thompson calls about, I don't know, 150 people together at the Willard Hotel. And we have this great meeting and people are getting up with great ideas. And Tommy will say, that's a terrific idea. We'll get together tomorrow and work on that. Well, he gets back to the HHS and the general counsel for HHS says to him, here are the seven laws you broke today because you were saying things you're not allowed to say without going through a 90-day federal process. So this medical doctor goes in the next day for his first full day on the job, calls me about 3 in the afternoon and says, I have to come see you today. So I said, fine. He comes by and he says, the first three hours of my new job was the general counsel explaining to me all of the things I could not do. And I have no idea how to make this office work. I mention that to you because I think until we figure out kind of an omnibus management bill that would cut across all the bureaucracies and just beat the Congress into passing it. I mean, all the great governors I talked to are all entrepreneurs. And they all operate like entrepreneurs. And the minute you hit Washington, there are all of these lawyers who stand around saying no. It's a fascinating difference.
3: Well, you know, you know I certainly obviously have to comply with the laws. But you know what? I've always found the best general counsels, one in particular that I worked with at Ameritrade, Ellen Coppolo, she never told me no. She said, You can do that. Here's the consequence. <laughs> and let me help you solve your problem. Here's what you want to do. Let me help you do it. That's what you need. So if the general counsel is saying, here's all the things you can't do, you fire the general counsel, you get somebody else and say, "It may be possible for the federal government, but you get somebody else to say, hey, I know we've got laws we have to follow. What I want you to do is help me comply with the laws and still do what I want to do. You just
0: described my career. And I would say that with one or two exceptions, it's worked. And those one or two have been moderately painful. <laughs> But they were worth it because otherwise you hunker down and nothing happens. But I agree with you entirely. I mean, but it does mean you got to get a really good lawyer who is a real risk taker and who understands his job is to say, yes, you can do this
3: if. Well, you don't know, do, when I interview people, I ask them to tell me about a time they failed. And if they can't tell me about a time they failed, I don't hire them. Because if you're not trying hard, if, like if you're taking risks, risks are called risks for a reason. Things can go bad, Right. If you're not taking risks, you're not pushing the envelope, you're not making progress, and sometimes when you take risks, things go bad. <laughs> it's going to happen. You're going to fail. It's just going to happen. And if you're not failing, you're not trying hard enough.
0: I can tell you, having lost two congressional races and then lost eight consecutive efforts to create a majority, I could answer your question pretty enthusiastically. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it's wonderful talking with you. Congratulations on an amazing job in Nebraska. And I think anybody listening this ought to know that you think about expanding your business, you know, going to Omaha wouldn't be a bad deal.
3: Not at all. Actually, Politico just ranked Nebraska the best state for pandemic response. We have got companies growing like crazy. So, yeah, come to Nebraska. It's a wonderful place. We've got wonderful people, and there's tremendous opportunity. It's called The Good Life for a Reason.
0: Listen, thank you for joining me, and I wish you and the people in Nebraska well. And it's extraordinary. I can't wait to get with you and talk about other things we're going to be doing together. Thank you.
3: All right, Greg. Thanks a lot, dude. Thanks for having me on.
0: Thank you to my guest, Governor Pete Ricketts. You can learn more about Governor Ricketts' work for the people of Nebraska on our show page at newsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howe. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.
2: 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
1: Hey, Sarah, I loved that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented.
2: Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids just like yours, and all content is fully human-moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Listen to Chasing Life, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app.